Good afternoon. It's Friday the 9th of February 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Call News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today by video link, we have Ben Rubin and Debbie Evans. Um, we're going to get started uh, with uh, Richard D. Hall and uh, the summary judgment that came out yesterday. Um, this has been covered uh, extensively in mainstream press, the narratives in mainstream press, and also the Law Society Gazette about the same uh, disaster troll, absurd, absurd and fantastical uh, conspiracy theories uh, and so on. This has been the uh, mainstream media coverage of it. Um, now, just to uh, offer a little bit of clarification here, because uh, uh, the BBC in particular were suggesting, uh, it was a bit unclear in their coverage, but they were suggesting that the case was won uh, from the litigants. Uh, and of course, this is not the end of the story. Uh, this was a summary judgment to decide whether Richard D. Hall would be allowed to present his evidence at the full hearing, which will be later in the year, uh, I guess. So uh, Richard uh, tells me that he has uh, uh, made a complaint actually against the BBC for, for their coverage of this, uh, with the full understanding, of course, that that's uh, not going to go anywhere, but he's got to make the point anyway. Um, and uh, so their coverage in particular, quite unclear on exactly what the situation was. So anyway, this particular, uh, the, the whole case, but and this action was taken by Martin Hibbert and his daughter, uh, Eve Hibbert, uh, and his daughter needs a litigation friend uh, because she has uh, issues, brain issues following um, the injury that uh, she has received. Um, so... They took this in the High Court of Justice, King's Bench Division, Media and Communications List, as I say, asking for a judgment against Richard D. Hall in order to prevent him from uh, making his point in, in the main court case whenever that happens. Now, it's interesting that uh, this uh, came to court in February, the 8th of February. We showed a little bit, bit of video which Ben took uh, following the court case uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, sorry, the, the original court case uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it took a couple of weeks for the uh, judgment to come out. Um, but the question was, why did it take so long for, at least the question in my mind is, why did it take so long for this uh, litigation to happen in the first place? Because uh, Martin Hibbert has known about what Richard D. Hall was doing and what he was saying and the publications and the, the uh, talks that he was given for 17 months or so. Uh, and yet uh, it took that long for uh, any kind of lit litigation to uh, uh, be brought forward. And the other point here is, of course, that this is litigation for harassment at the end of the day um, and not for libel or defamation. Uh, and that's probably because of the length of time that has passed since um, the uh, initial, uh, since Richard D. Hall's initial publications, um, because there would be a 12 month uh, statute of limitations on bringing a libel case and six years for for this. So we've got to keep in mind that this uh, litigation only began following uh, the BBC's uh, Disaster Trolls series. Um, and uh, of course, this was uh, produced by uh, the wonderful Mariana Spring. Uh, and this was published, I think, in October or November uh, 2022. Uh, um, and so this uh, took place. And then several months later, uh, the litigation began. Uh, and what's interesting about this, this is episode seven that you can see on screen at the minute of the Disaster Troll series. And it was entitled, I Helped Bring Down Alex Jones. And Mariana Spring was highlighting somebody in the United States uh, that had managed to bring the litigation against Alex Jones in the United States. And I just want to show one quote from uh, the show notes that go with this, because it said, or it asked the question, could this sort of legal action provide a way for those targeted by similar conspiracy theories in Britain to seek accountability from their tormentors? Um, so I don't know what has happened here. I don't know what involvement Mariana Spring or the BBC may have had in helping the Hibberts come to their de decision to bring uh, legal action. But the timing of this seems very interesting to me. And I think there are questions to be asked around it. So let's just... Uh, have a look at the litigation itself and what the judge said. Uh, so we've got to remember this was action asking for a summary judgment to deny Richard D. Hall the right to present his evidence for, or at least the evidence that he has for his opinions, the reason that he came to the conclusions that he came to uh, at the full hearing. Uh, and so the full hearing, when it happens, uh, is going to be on the issue of whether he, uh, whether he uh, expressing his opinions in the way that he did uh, constitutes harassment. 
but this is what the judge uh, said in the judgment. Uh, he said, although Hall's beliefs may be genuinely held, his theory that the Manchester bombing was an operation staged by government agencies in which no one was genuinely killed or injured is absurd and fantastical. Uh, he said, once the defendant's general hypothesis has been rejected, as I have rejected it, it is unrealistic to maintain that claimants were not there and were either not severely injured at all uh, or acquired their injuries earlier and by a different mechanism uh, than the bombing. Indeed, the latter points are simply preposterous. And I would just make the point or ask the question, are they simply preposterous? Uh, and uh, it, Or is there precedent, in fact, for the UK government having staged this type of event, not necessarily in the UK, but in other countries? And I would just suggest everybody that you have a look at uh, Robert Stewart's fantastic website, Fabrication in BBC Panorama, Saving Serious Children. Uh, this is his analysis of the 30th of September 2013 BBC Panorama documentary, Saving Ch Serious Children and related BBC news reports. Uh, and uh, there is no doubt in my mind that that was a staged event. Uh, and so no matter what anybody says or thinks about the Manchester Arena bombing, uh, there is precedent, historical precedent here, uh, and in my opinion, and therefore for the judge to su suggest that there is absurdity going on uh, suggests to me that the judge wasn't quite aware of maybe some of the other things that have gone on in the past. Uh, he ended off his uh, judgment by saying this, uh, that I find that the defendant has not discharged the evidential burden which rests on him. He has no real prospect, indeed no prospect at all, of success on the issues. Uh, and this is with regard to uh, whether he's allowed to present evidence or not. Uh, of of his how he came to his conclusions, and I will resolve uh, them in the favor in the claimant's favor. So that was uh, that was where it ended up. Now, just to be clear, um, this doesn't mean that Richard D. Hall will not be allowed to provide any evidence at his court hearing, um, uh, whenever that happens, whenever the full court hearing happens. But it clearly means that he cannot uh, provide justification for his actions, and therefore the only evidence that he's going to be able to give is uh, whether, uh, to some degree, his actions constitute harassment or not. Uh, and none of the context and none of the background will be allowed to be presented. Ben, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, but it seems to me that uh, you know if we're living uh, in a so-called democracy with the rule of law at its heart, people have got to be able to present um, a case in their own defense. Um, and if you're being prevented from uh, presenting a large tranche of that evidence, um, there can't really be any justice. Yeah, I, I agree. This is absolutely unprecedented. Um, I mean, they, there are extraordinary claims being made here. That's certainly the case. But it feels like that Richard Hall's being preemptively denied the right to a fair trial. I think justice is being compromised here. Um, and we're venturing into territory where... Uh, people are being dissuaded and actually told that they are not allowed to question the actions and the methods and the motivations of, of the British state, which is extraordinarily dangerous territory for us to be venturing into. Um, so, uh, you know, you used the word unprecedented there, and I think that is a point we've got to make here. This is a unique case. It's the first time this type of action has been taken about against any individual in the UK. Um, and uh, at the heart of it is the question of what is journalism, what is investigative journalism, uh, and what is freedom of speech, uh, and are people allowed to express opinions? Now, uh, it's very unfortunate that that uh, uh, if if in in the course of those opinions you are um, throwing allegations at somebody who is innocent of something, but there so there has to be evidence for what you're providing. As far as I'm aware, I haven't seen anything to suggest that Richard D. Hall did not have evidence for what he was suggesting. Um, quite the opposite, in fact. So there were definitely questions to be asked there. But the question then is, if you take this a step further, at what point uh, are we not allowed to uh, criticise any activity uh, that we disagree with uh, because we may be accused of harassment? This seems to me, Ben, to be simply an effort to have a chilling effect on in, uh, independent investigative journalism uh, and basically the only type of journalism that's going to be allowed in the near future 
is that which is supported by an organization such as the BBC? Right. It's the state defining what it is and isn't true. Um, and, you know, one a phrase jumps to mind that the truth does not mind being questioned. A lie does not like being challenged. Uh, feels relevant here. I think that's absolutely right. Okay, so so uh, we continue to wish all the best uh, to Richard, uh, and uh, we will keep everybody informed as his court case progresses. Uh, there will be a further hearing uh, to make orders over this particular uh, judgment, uh, and whether that results in an order for uh, information to be taken off the internet, that remains to be seen. Uh, but we'll keep you posted. Debbie, uh, let me welcome you to the program now, uh, and. Uh, well, the other news, of course, over the last few days is with regard to cancer because of what's happened to King Charles. Uh, and suddenly cancer is the biggest headline story as far as the mainstream media seems to be concerned. Everyone, and I'm sure everyone, it goes without saying, doesn't it? It's been wall-to-wall -wall coverage uh, of cancer and the King's diagnosis. Um, and of course, the junior doctors today have just announced that they're going on strike again. At the end of February, we already know that the NHS is completely overwhelmed and that there's 7 million on the waiting list. So now uh, let's talk about cancer. And everybody's got an interest in cancer. And we're talking the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, wherever you go, someone has got an interest in cancer. And it seems we've gone from one war, one sea war, the COVID war, to another war, the cancer war. And we seem to have normalized this one in two, get cancer. But let's just remember, stand up to cancer. Here's a little bit of video to just remind you. Today saw the rollout of the vaccine, which has been developed and tested at an incredible pace over the course of the pandemic. Standing up. All the good stuff that humanity has ever done comes down to this one simple act. It builds community, changes history, and shapes the future. But now it's time to stand up to cancer. Stand up. And when we stand up, we save lives. Because when one stands, we all stand. And we become the person who become the people to stop cancer in its tracks. We give power to scientists working like never before to create life-saving treatments. And it's good news. Give money, save lives, stand up to cancer. Debbie, that's so reminiscent of uh, so mu much of the COVID uh, messaging. Isn't it just? And of course, the big message is uh, you've got to give money to uh, save lives as well. It's all come down to money. Uh, cancer's uh, headline news, it's big business, it's billions of dollars, more money goes into cancer research than anything else. And it's also top of the parliamentary agenda. Now, cancer is part of the NHS long-term plan. It's also, the UK has a, a 10-year cancer strategy, but this was the most recent communications that I could find, 7th of February this year, House of Commons support for cancer in England. So let's go and have a look at the summary um, and, you know, it's a big document, so please do go and have a look. But they talk about the most common cancers as prostate, bowel, breast and lung. Um, and that since 2021, 134,802 have died of cancer. If we go on following to the cancer statistics in the House of Commons, which was also published on the 7th of February, there's a nice graph um, which talks about cancer incidents. Now, you can see there that it's actually in 2019, uh, it was going down. Moving on to the most common cancers, um, it would seem that with men, the highest uh, is prostate with 24% and the lowest liver, 2%. 
In women, uh, the most common uh, cancer was breast cancer, 28%. And I think you might be quite surprised, bearing in mind the HPV vaccine and the push to put vaccines, is that cervix or cervical, uh, cervical cancer is right down at the bottom at 2%. Um, there's also a backlog of over 20 of 62 days um, you can see there. I mean, there's lots of graphs, lots of information in this paper. So do go and have a look at for this but there is a backlog so even after an urgent gp referral people are still waiting now just recently on the 4th of february it was world cancer day and just take note of that date the 4th of february um, and let's remember that cancer knows no borders uh, here's a little video to remind you of world cancer day far more unites us than divides us we live, we love, we learn, we work, we play, and we get sick. Anyone can get cancer, but not everyone has the same access to cancer care. This can change. It must change. World leaders, those with the power to make that change, need to hear our message. We need your help to make sure it's heard. There have been incredible advances in cancer prevention. Diagnosis and treatment for some. But not for all. Income, education, geography, and discrimination can all affect the treatment and care we receive. Differences exist between countries, across age groups, and inside the borders of all nations, wealthy and poor. Where you live, who you are, who you love, it makes no difference to cancer. Why should it make a difference to cancer care? United, we can tell governments that this matters. Together, we can be a part of the solution. Will you add your voice? Demand, Demand equity for cancer care. And, and help us close the care gap. Uh, so there you have it. And the very last um, millisecond of that video, if you go and have a look at it, shows the sponsorship. And you'll see that most of the sponsorship for cancer comes from the pharmaceutical companies. So just remember that date. That was World Cancer Day, 4th of February. On the 5th of February, we received the news that King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer and Buckingham Palace released uh, that official statement. Uh, shortly after, the Daily Mail released uh, an article um, just highlighting uh, how the royal family support cancer charities, which prompted me to go and have a look at a little bit further. So I went to the royal family website, and of course there is a lot of talk about the royal family's long-standing uh, long relationships with cancer charities. So when we go and have a look a little bit further, we can see that there's a quote there from Prince Charles as he was then Prince Charles. Cancer is not one disease, but 200 different diseases, some serious, some not so serious. We all know that when we break a huge problem down into manageable pieces, it begins to appear less daunting. So this article um, has come from... Um, Prince Charles as he was then, when he as he was patron of Macmillan Cancer Support. Um, so let's just go on one more slide from there. And I just want you to look at the bottom paragraph in particular. I mean, he talks about three million people in the United Kingdom are living with cancer, but the impact of the pandemic on cancer care is practical as well as emotional. Macmillan estimates an additional 50,000 people in the UK are now missing a cancer diagnosis that they would otherwise have received. So this is, of course, making the charity's work all the more vital. Um, so if we can skip on one from there, um, the one bit of the report that did alarm me a little bit was that um, the then Prince Charles said that giving has become not an act 
but an attitude. Now, isn't that interesting? Um, Hard-won qualities and vaccination programs. Now, as soon as he came out of hospital after having his prostate um, surgery, he announced the big help out volunteers. So that goes nicely into the giving aspect and giving to charities. So I went to look a little bit more at Macmillan and I went to look at their financial accounts as one does. Um, So if we skip on one from there, we can see that their income is a staggering 227.1 million. If we look at the breakdown, legacies and wills account for 90.7 million, fundraising 47.6, and you've got philanthropy there at 5.9. So let's go and have a look at the staff costs because I always like to see what the staff costs are. Now you can see there that in 2022 this totals to 167 staff are earning over 60,000 a year. 15 of them are earning between 80 and 90,000 and 11 of them are earning between 100 and 100 and 110,000. So that's a fairly big wage. Now, when King Charles was in hospital for his prostate surgery, um, he was also, um, his wife, uh, Queen Camilla, was very busy opening up a new cancer centre at the Royal Free Hospital, which is my uh, training hospital. So I went to look at Maggie's and sure enough, uh, Queen Camilla has been patron since 2008. So I just want to highlight to the royal family and uh, to everybody, really, do you think that um, the royal family and the experts have read Daily Clout just recently, where there's a new report on young people dying of cancer at explosive rates? And of course, we're talking 15 to 44 years. Um, This is uh, metastatic cancer. That's cancer that spreads very quickly and terminal cancer. And you'll know that we've done a recent interview with Ed Dowd. Um, I don't suppose that this has got anything to do with the mRNA. Um, vaccine. Um, And further on in the Daily Clout um, article, you can see there that you can you can see there's an unprecedented, unprecedented uh, rise. So um, let's go on one from there. And you can uh, see that, as I've just mentioned, the UK are scheduled in for an mRNA cancer vaccine. We are going to be the first country Uh, to do this, to roll this out in tandem with uh, Pfizer and BioNTech. Great timing, don't you think? Uh, Don't let's forget that there is Grail testing early, cancer testing Grail with a company that was founded by Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos to get everybody going for cancer testing. And this is exactly what these wall-to-wall stories of our royal trusted messengers appear to have done because the standard are reporting that since the Duchess of York was uh, diagnosed with melanoma, there has been a surge, one visit every 13 seconds to the NHS website. And similarly, since the King's diagnosis, uh, men have been checking uh, their cancer risk after his scare. And according to the NHS website, there have been 26,170 visits in 48 hours. Um, So we can see that people are going very quickly to the NHS and these are healthy people going for tests that they're being asked to go for. They are asymptomatic and won't probably normally be tested. And I would just like to say my final point would be AstraZeneca are a pioneer in cancer treatments. AstraZeneca are also partnered with AstraCarta and the Sustainable Goals, King Charles's Sustainable Goals. So AstraCarta, AstraZeneca, TerraCarta, and for anybody that didn't know, Astra means in it's a supernatural weapon in Hindu mythology, a weapon that comes from the hand, such as an arrow or a dart. So, but there'll be much more on cancer uh, going ahead, I'm sure. Um, it, it's fascinating that the the, the gag that they played uh, with respect to you know mass testing of healthy people during COVID is now being rolled out into cancer care. And just as a, and a complete aside here, uh, you know I have been bombarded in the last several months with SMS messages from uh, the local GP practice telling me to go and get this test done and that test done and the other test done. And yesterday, I finally decided I had enough, and I told them to stop sending me any more. And they emailed me to tell me that they had removed me from the list by marking my file as uh, dissent from SMS. 
so so th this is I find the terminology there really interesting. I'm as far as they're concerned, a dissenter, uh, it seems. Uh, uh, but anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit more in extra, maybe. Um, thank you, Debbie. Uh, ben, uh, let's come over to you and uh, what's going on uh, with uh, Common Purpose to start off with. Yes, we're all dissenters here, aren't we? Um, yes, let's hear from Common Purpose. What are they up to? From today's session, I'd say there are three main takeaways. The first one is really the caliber of the people coming in is incredibly high. I mean, the, the, the young leaders come with such an incredibly high understanding of the topics from circularity to decarbonization. What they know at their age compared to what we knew at their age is is just is is without comparison, and I think to me the main takeaway for the young leaders uh, within the within the, the the group is you should really feel empowered to speak out because the ideas that you came in and the understanding of the issues that you came with is is really really high and you have a lot to contribute. So as you go in your future careers, don't think that you know less. Think that you come with something meaningful to uh, bring to the conversation. For the senior leaders, I think what that teaches you and what that teaches, I would consider myself a senior leader, but let's say like a youngish leader like myself, is um, don't hesitate necessarily to give um, um, uh, leadership opportunities and to let a younger crowd and young leader drive the conversation and drive initiatives, drive projects, because they do not lack the knowledge. Maybe work with them, bring the seniority in terms of how to make things happen within organizations, but do not feel afraid to let these guys really, really carry through huge responsibilities and huge projects. Okay, so that was a clip from a video from the Asia Pacific region from the end of last year. Common Purpose are very excited about net zero decarbonization and getting young people to do all the work, probably because they've been fully and properly indoctrinated in all of the science, TM. Uh, as I said, that was a clip. So the gentleman there goes on to talk about the fact that young people are unafraid to explore controversial ideas. I think it's quite interesting. Um, and he also says that each country will have its own solutions for decarbonisation, which I'm going to get into in a moment. Second thing to note about that film, that was a common purpose film. The second thing to note is that the fella talking works for Arup which is a fascinating UK-based company. They're structural engineers. They basically make the dreams that architects sell to clients a reality. Really, really interesting business. Founded in 1946 by Ove Arup, and they've been instrumental over the past eight decades in building iconic modern structures such as Coventry Cathedral, Kingsgate Bridge in Durham, the Sydney Opera House, Lloyds of London, the Angel of the North, the National Aquatic Centre at the Beijing Olympics, the King's Cross Redevelopment, Crossrail, and on and on and on. They have a hand in huge urban developments all around the world. In recent years, they've gone in hard on sustainability. This is their big core purpose now. So if you go to their websites, the first thing that you see, they talk about being a global collective of designers, engineering and sustainability consultants dedicated to sustainable development. They're an associate partner of the World Economic Forum, so they help to shape and execute World Economic Forum strategies. They also signed the COP21 Paris Climate Agreement, they're very proud of, and then that same year established a formal partnership with C40 Cities, which is the global confederation of mayors currently chaired by Sadiq Khan. We talk about it a lot. It's been set up to accelerate the drive towards net zero and ostensibly to solve the climate crisis. Uh, they've done a bunch of joint reports with C40, including this one on the future of urban consumption in a 1.5C world, which is the new shorthand for uh, a lot of their um, strategy in this area. They talk about the huge risks faced by humanity between now and 2050 if we don't pay loads of money to Arif and their mates, so sea levels rising, food insecurity, extreme heat, that kind of thing. And they also go into great detail about the carbon footprint of a pair of trousers, which I found quite amusing. Uh, but anyway, that's a global report. How does that manifest at a local level? Let's have a look at South Wales. Uh, so Arup helped to develop the net zero strategy for Pembrokeshire County Council. They've got an ambition to be the UK home of green energy. They've got their little roadmap here for net zero, and we're about a third of the way along that. 
Um, and by 2030, they want zero carbon to be the routine choice, culturally embedded, self-regulating, really fundamentally built into the structure of how uh, we, we run society. Uh, Arab have been paid a lot of money to do that. So actually, they've received three quarters of a million quid over the past six years from Pembrokeshire Council. It's just one county council in the UK for work that is um, probably safe to assume pretty much all to do with net zero. That comes from a freedom of information request. Uh, and, and that also includes plans for what is described as 10 designated active travel settlements. Really interesting terminology in the county which basically sounds like another way of describing 15-minute cities. And the council actually removed that statement from its website shortly after those designated settlements were uncovered by UK column viewers Sharon and Helen. Thank you, ladies, for the tip there. Massively appreciated. Great work. Uh, so that's Pembrokeshire, where Arup are working. And we know that Wales is a hotbed of sustainable development activity. The SDGs have been embedded into the Welsh Government operational plans. Uh, they've got these... Uh, uh, we've got this visual here explaining how that all cascades down from the 17 SDGs at the top through the well-being goals, the national indicators and milestones, the sustainable development principles, uh, all the way down to the ground level. This reeks of a big four firm, by the way. I wouldn't be surprised if EY or Deloitte or someone like that made that chart. And that's basically how this stuff is enforced from above, the top level, the SDGs, all the way down into the operational activities on the front line. Um, investment in climate action has been enormous in Wales. It actually now encompasses 60% of public spending. They're going to spend £5 billion on climate projects over the next three years for a population of 3 million people. So that works out about £500 per person per year on climate. So they're making huge investments in infrastructure, new energy systems, remodeling buildings, uh, building electric vehicle charging infrastructure, that kind of thing. And it's tripled the amount being spent on health and social services, which are actually being cut. So this, from the start of this year, um, there's a £646 million budget gap. So social care is being, is being cut. Uh, many local councils are going bankrupt. They're even cutting basic services like public toilets because they're spending all the money on climate change. Um, as we know, all of this is based on highly questionable and politicised science, uh, particularly this IPCC report which is driven out of the United Nations. Uh, but we know this isn't reliable. I've talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's biased science. Uh, the Clintel report came out last summer, signed by 1,800 scientists, including a bunch of Nobel Prize winners, basically says that all of this is unreliable because it's based on computer models. They'll quote here, the output of the computer models depends fully on the assumptions that model makers put into them. And in the past 50 years, the predictions of climate models about global warming and their dire effects have all been wrong. In the engineering community, they would be qualified as useless, right? But those useless models are being used to direct billions in government spending and a fundamental reordering of daily life. They've also created a policy environment that's led directly to the closure of the Tata Steel plant in Port Talbot in South Wales. That's 3,000 jobs gone at the end of last year in one fell swoop. That action was carried out by an organisation which is also a proud partner of Common Purpose, Tata Steel case study on the Common Purpose website. All right, so it's not just happening in Wales, it's all around the country. I'd very briefly just like to make you aware of this organisation, 3CI, Cities Commission for Climate Investment. It's a new organisation. I'm going to be talking about them a lot this year, I think. Uh, they've hosted events focused on net zero policy in Bristol over the past few days, which was graciously hosted by colleagues from Arup. So they're also involved here as well. And they've also been involved in Yorkshire and Humberside in the past week, where the two regional mayors have been banging the drum for net zero and especially for what they call local private collaboration, which for those watching last week will know is basically just another way of describing fascism. So. Um, common purpose, Arab, local councils, dodgy money, net zero, lots more on this to come. Uh, brilliant. Thank you, Ben, for that. Now, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, uh, please, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options for, us, for you to help us out there, and that would be very much needed and appreciated. Um, and uh, sorry, there we go. Uh, uh, if you would like to pick something up from the UK column shop, uh, that is uh, important as well. But please do share anything uh, that you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, now, many people will have noticed that actually we are under quite a lot of attack uh, at the moment. 
um, and from external sources. And we'll talk a little bit about that in extra. So if you are a UK column member and you'd like to join us for that, uh, please do so. Um, Debbie, uh, your blog is now up. It is, yes, thank you. Um, and in particular, uh, I wanted to focus on patient safety and also vaccine injuries. And thank you to Hillary for sending in her mum's story, Lois. Uh, please do go to my blog and read that. Um, it's incredibly poignant. Thank you. And uh, a quick advertisement uh, once again for the uh, silencing, silencing the Academics event, uh, which is taking place on Sunday the 18th of February, beginning 6 p.m., UK time. Uh, that's uh, us in collaboration with the Organisation for Propaganda Studies and Propaganda in Focus. Uh, Piers Robinson, that's been on this programme many times, will be hosting that. David Miller, who was on the programme on Wednesday, uh, will be taking part as well as Daniel Browdy, uh, Oliver Boyd Barrett, Jared Ball. Uh, and uh, this is all about the censorship agenda. Uh, and uh, we also want to mention that the next Alternative View event, AV14, is taking place on Sunday the 26th of May 2024 uh, at the Leonardo Hotel Milton Keynes. Uh, tickets are available now if you would like to attend that. Uh, I'll just mention that the Silencing the Academics uh, event is an online event. It's going to take place on the UK Column website, of course. Um, now, on Monday, uh, I was in London at the House of Commons uh, with Andrew Bridgen and, uh, well, there's Meryl Nass uh, and Philip Cruiser and also uh, um, uh, uh, Christine Anderson from AFD in Germany was there as well. Uh, so uh, that was a fantastic event. It was well attended by uh, the invitees, not so well attended by the MPs. I believe there were three MPs turned up for this one. Uh, I'm not sure whether that was because of the presence of Christine Anderson or not. Uh, Sammy Wilson was uh, the only uh, MP that I think I remember off the top of my head. I don't remember who else was there. Uh, but uh, Meryl Nass doing her usual uh, excellent job at presenting the World Health Organization Pandemic Treaty uh, and the IHR, the uh, International Health Regulations and so on. Uh, Philip Cruiser was talking, giving some context on that from a, a legal uh, perspective. And I just want to mention uh, that uh, Philip is still pursuing his legal action against uh, Swiss Medic and other legal cases with respect to mRNA vaccines. Uh, and his colleague, uh, Renata Holzeisen, continues to do her work uh, on the vaccination situation as well uh, with respect to uh, Comirnaty and, uh, uh, sorry, and uh, Pfizer and BioNTech and Spikevax and Moderna in the EU. Uh, so uh, if you don't uh, aren't aware of their work, go and have a look at their respective websites that were just on screen. Uh, but what was uh, uh, another interesting aspect of this uh, was that everybody was uh, wearing um, the no no farming no farmers no food uh, hats uh, in the House of uh, Commons. Uh, so there's Andrew Bridge and Christian Anderson and and the rest wearing those hats uh, because they are absolutely on board with the uh, no farmer no food. Uh, campaign. I'm glad to say that that seems to be getting some traction in the UK now. So this is the grocer uh, recognising uh, uh, yesterday that uh, No Farmers No Food campaign group wins support as UK producers mull protest action. So they're recognising that uh, the things are coming to a head in this country as well as they are abroad. Uh, so let's look at Italy first. Uh, and we can see that the uh, farming protests continue over the last few days. Uh, the tractors headed off to Rome this time. Uh, hundreds of tractors from many areas, uh, around 2,000 were expected, uh, and so on. So this uh, continued uh, in Italy. Uh, then we move on to Greece, uh, and the, s the same type of action going on there. Uh, so uh, they launched uh, national action protests, as they were calling them. Uh, they're asking for duty-free agricultural diesel, cheaper electricity, subsidies on supplies and animal feed, and so on. Uh, and as we're going to hear from Ben uh, in a second, they want to see an end to this attack on farming that's coming on uh, from alternative food production methods. Uh, when I say alternative, I don't mean that in a positive sense. Uh, and then we have the Netherlands. Of course, the Dutch farmers kicked all this off. Uh, and uh, uh, they are continuing to protest. They haven't gone anywhere, uh, and they continue to protest. But in Spain, uh, they, similar to the French, are starting to take some direct action. So this is a lorry load of imported food coming into Spain that the uh, Spanish farmers have decided really would be better not being in the back of the truck and instead spread all over the road. 
because uh, that's the best thing to do. So uh, they, uh, the protests in Europe continue and hopefully we will start to see some traction building in the UK as well. Um, I don't know, Ben or Debbie, if you've got any thoughts on this. No, I'm you on the hop bands, but, but yeah, didn't didn't you just? Uh, yeah, more more power to the farmers. That's my okay. thought on this. Okay, well, let's leave it there. But let's move on then to your segment, which is talking about uh, Henry Dimbleby uh, of the Dimbleby family of broadcasters, uh, who seems to want to be wanting to transform the uh, global food system. Well, quite. Yeah, there's lots of people looking to uh, disrupt and improve global food production and to commercialise it, really importantly. So you said, uh, yes, Henry Dimbleby, um, uh, son of David Dimbleby, the famous broadcaster. Henry is the founder of the Leon restaurant chain, a UK government advisor, and importantly, a former Bain management consultant. I'll come back to Bain in a moment. So he's just announced the launch of a new investment fund called Bramble Partners, He's got £50 million to seek better ways to feed the world, right? And this is about, as I said, disruption and commercialization of the food system. It appears to be linked to this organization, uh, which interestingly has no pictures of food on its website, which is a bit odd if you're involved in the food supply chain. Anyway, they talk about themselves as coaches, curators, consultants, and community builders. We design radically hopeful, people-centered, place-based interventions for leaders and teams who are seeking to build a more just and sustainable world, which just gives you a sense of some of the absolute guff floating around the sustainability movement, net zero, and the food industry in particular. This is how W1 West One in London, for those of you who don't know what W1 is, talk about food. They've got absolutely no idea what they're on about. Um, now, Henry Dimbleby is very vocal on the issue of food. He was at Tony Blair's Future of Great Britain conference last year, which Debbie and I reported on. He actually talked quite compellingly about the junk food cycle, which causes so much damage to the British population. The fact that over 80% of the food products sold by the 18 biggest food companies in the UK are deemed by the WHO to be too unhealthy to market to children. Right? We've got like real garbage in our food supply. Um, but it, when he wrote the National Food Strategy in 2021, I said he's a UK government advisor, he actually asked representatives from those companies to come in and advise him. So he had people from Unilever, people from Greggs, uh, the, 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 the owner of which, by the way, is in, in jail currently for child porn offences, as an aside. I don't know if people know that, but that is actually true. Uh, he also had people from Sainsbury's and Ocado, so basically big food representatives, as well as David Halpern, by the way, from the Behavioural Insights team. It gets everywhere. Um, and Bain also, the management consultancy, provided what they called supplementary evidence, right? So Bain, who are a World Economic Forum partner, were advising on the national food strategy. And just to give you a little bit of insight into their view, this is the strategic consultancy view of the food supply. They talk about this as a value chain. These are the different functional components of the food industry from raw materials and inputs on the left all the way through to food retail and distribution on the right-hand side. So this is the food system as corporate industrialized process. Lots of big firms with recognizable logos. You've got Tesco, Nando's, McDonald's, Coca-Cola in there. Um, big reasons behind the Massive increases in cancer, by the way, but um, we'll talk about that another time, maybe an extra. Um, and the bit that uh, is causing all of the consternation and the, and the protest is this section. If we just click on, that's the section on produce. And the um, assessment from Bain is that there's lots of fragmentation here. Um, and actually, the issue is that the vast majority of farms are small-scale family farms. Right, so actually Bain, Bain's view and the view that's gone into the national food strategy is that the key to solving the farming crisis is, there, is, there, is for there to be fewer, larger farms so that they can negotiate more effectively with the other big corporate players in the value chain. That's essentially their recommendation and, and that's what's being pushed back against. Yeah. Um, so as I said, Bain is a strategic partner of the World Economic Forum. In 2022, it's really important to understand the provenance of where this advice is coming from, by the way. So in 22, 
uh, they were banned from doing work in South Africa due to orchestrating a corporate takeover of the state. Yeah, you couldn't make this stuff up. They basically masterminded state capture in order to repurpose state institutions to the advantage of the firm, the government, and its private sector allies. They sound like lovely people, don't they? So you definitely want to get them in to advise you on food strategy. That actually also, by the way, led to a three-year ban on delivering UK government work, which was surprisingly overturned after just six months, right? So they were banned for three years for delivering UK government work. And then within six months, that ban had been overturned. That was actually um, less than a year ago that that happened. So someone in UK government really, really wants to work with Bain. Um, I wonder what they might be doing back there. Anyway, um, talking of corporate state capture, so we're going to move on slightly from, from, from the food system now. Um, talking of corporate state capture, we're going to head back to Davos uh, and Gold's house uh, because there's just more mileage in this. They keep on releasing statements and new bits of information that I think is important for people to be aware of. We talked about this slightly edited image last week with Samantha Power from USAID, Heinz Schumacher, the CEO of Unilever, and Janet Troncali and Carmine DeCibio from EY. And I've now discovered what they were there to do. They were actually announcing a new public-private partnership, aka fascism, right? And it's called Circle Alliance, catalyzing inclusive, resilient, and circular local economies. That's what it's all about. And it's an impact-led new collaboration to reduce plastics use, improve livelihoods, empower women, and protect the environment. Now, it's brand new. It's not really been properly launched yet, but it appears to be an American version of this organization, which I came across. So this is called Transform, and this is a partnership between Unilever, EY, and the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office, right? So basically, they've been going around interfering in the lives of sub-Saharan people on behalf of the British state, right? So this is the UK version of the new entity that's just been announced by the US, the Circle Alliance. And we've spoken previously about the way in which Africa and other countries, but primarily Africa, is, is, is being used as a testbed for these global strategies, these new technology systems. And it appears that this is just another example of how that's playing out uh, on the ground. This is basically neo-colonialism, right? So it's not being carried out at, at the end of a barrel of a gun but on the receiving end of a loan and some bogus new technology platform. But ultimately, the end point is the same place. So keep your eyes on Circle over the coming months. We'll report back on how that develops. And just to wrap things up for this section, um, Goals House, they love to talk about what they're up to, and they dropped their 2024 video, and I thought I'd share it because it's an absolute peach. How do we make the global goals a brilliant second half? And that is really crucial because only 15% are on track to be met. We are very much down at half time. However, every match can be won in the second half and there are reasons to be positive and we do know what to do. AI has enormous potential for sustainable development and we need a systematic effort to increase access to AI so that developing economies can benefit from its potential. We need to bridge digital divide instead of deepening it. There's a lot of talk about AI at this Davos. If you take nothing else away, remember this. AI is far more than a chatbot. AI is a tool that changes the way we do science. It's science at digital speed. People around the world are changing the way we're democratizing healthcare. They are developing millions of new materials, changing materials science, leading to a second green revolution. The potential is limitless. Whether you think of AI as a new player on the team, an MVP on the team for the second half, or a game changer, literally changing the rules of the game, the potential is vast and extraordinarily exciting. The interesting thing about this year's conversation at Davos is we have moved last year, we talked about the wow of AI. This year we're talking about the how of AI. How do we make it real? How do we combine boldness and responsibility? This absolutely has to be an obligation for companies, for industry, for governments, and for the international community. Incredible. So, 
Well, quite, yeah. I think they're losing the plot a little bit, actually. I don't know if you noticed, but there's about three moments in there where the people doing the voiceover can't pronounce the words properly. It's like they, 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 they're having a meltdown. They're obsessed with AI. They think that this technology is going to come in and fix everything for them, but it's really not, actually. And I think they're desperately holding on to this thing like some kind of, you know, like piece of um, wood. It's like they've come off a sinking ship and they're desperately holding on to anything that will keep them afloat, but it's not going to work, unfortunately. Um, they were quite upfront. They said that they're down against their SDG targets, which is good. They think they can win the match in the second half. They can't. Um, loads of just total guff again, like this buzzword bingo, AI is science at digital speed. That doesn't mean anything, right? We're changing the way that we're democratizing healthcare. doesn't mean anything. They're literally changing the rules of the game. Like who asked you to do that? And, you know, on, on what basis is that going to happen? No, absolutely no idea. Um, there's a bunch of really interesting people. Sorry, go ahead there, Mike. No, I was just going to. I was. Just, I was just going to come back onto the farming issue for a second there, because you know, of course, AI is increasingly becoming a part of farming. If you're a big enough farm to be able to afford the technology, uh, why else would they want to get rid of uh, family farmers? Well, of course, the family farmers uh, tend to be smaller scale, uh, and that uh, they are fighting very hard, both in the United States and in the UK, for, for example, right to repair because the newest tractors are coming with software that John Deere and other tractor manufacturers claim is their proprietary uh, software. It's copyright to them. And even if you bought the tractor and you think you own the tractor, in fact, you don't own the tractor because you can't repair it yourself because you can only go to the authorized dealer because they are the only people that have the software that can uh, patch the, the software that's on the tractor and so on. So there's a massive fight over right to repair. Uh, but my question, Ben, is, you know, I should mention, of course, the gene editing legislation that the UK pushed through last year, which to facilitate this type of large-scale corporate food production that you're talking about. And, and then the question is, uh, what does this type of, if you know, if we think that the situation is bad with respect, with respect to soil health at the moment, with the with the type of farming that we have at the moment, which is mainly small farms. Uh, what happens when we take the the big corporate farming model and expand it the way that these guys want? Uh, yeah, quite. I mean, um, the, the 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 big farming industry and particular agrochemicals are very closely aligned to the big pharmaceutical companies, right? Like it's and 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 as destructive as those pharmaceuticals have been and are being to human health, uh, the, the agrochemicals are just as destructive to, to, the, um, uh, to, to, the, to the soil and to, and to the ecosystem that we depend on. Right? Everything that these people are proposing is, 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 is basically a degradation to, 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 to the natural order, right? to creation, right? to this, yeah. this wonderful thing that we, that we, we get to exist with it. You know? and, and, and unfortunately, I, you know, call me cynical, but I think a lot of it's deliberate. Yes, it, indeed. But uh, we'll call you cynical in the meantime. Anyway, uh, Debbie, <laughs> Debbie, let's come on to you then. And uh, well, pandemic influenza preparedness. Yes, um, and I want to I want to draw your attention actually to something that I don't think many people are talking about. And if they are, perhaps you'd let me know, um, and I can I can see what anyone else is saying. But the pandemic influenza preparedness uh, framework. What is it? Well. The title might be a bit alarming there, sharing of influenza viruses and access to vaccines and other benefits. Now, I'm just taking this as an example uh, on the 10th of April 2018. But when we look at the origins of the PIP framework, we can see really this all kicked off after bird flu back in 2003. Um, now, Gizzers is what, what you can see there, G-I-S-R-S, Gizzers, uh, is the Global Influenza Surveillance and Response System. So if we go on to look at the laboratories, you can see that, that's, that slide there. And we're going to zoom in a little bit on the map in a minute, but um, you can see that 114 member states are supporting 153 laboratories. That's the zoom in there. And all the color, there's a lot of laboratories and a lot of centers around the UK and around um, Europe. So I'm sorry, it's not very clear, but do go and have a look at that document. 
Now, many of us have heard of Event 201. You've heard of um, Catastrophic Contagion. We've heard of Operation Lockstep. Um, but who has heard of PIP Deploy? So I went searching for this document. Um, and this is uh, PIP Deploy stands for Pandemic Influenza Deployment Workshop and Exercise, ensuring timely access, distribution and delivery of pandemic supplies meeting report. Now, this took place in Hanoi in Vietnam on the 11th to 12th of December 2019. Now, let's just remember that uh, the WHO declared the pandemic in March 2020. So this was going on just before as COVID was, well, we call it COVID-19. That's because it was announced that COVID existed or I'm just using that word metaphorically, uh, in 2019, it came into our vocabulary. So this exercise consisted of five missions and 10 key elements. And basically, it was a glorified board game. So if we look at the key discussion points, um, it's interesting to see, does this remind you of uh, the target audience perhaps for COVID? The target audience for this one was general population, high-risk groups, pregnant women, children, elderly citizens, medical professionals, migrants and tourists. Uh, they talk about the media coverage, that there's got to be um, effective public communications, clear, re reliable information. But this whole mission or this whole game really is based about how quickly can you get vaccination centres set up? How quickly can you get injections to people? How quickly can you staff them? But they also look at adverse events. It's a big document, so do go and have a look at it. And I've just highlighted in red on adverse events. So on this exercise, they said to monitor adverse events following immunisation, participants propose that a vaccine recipients are asked to stay in the facility for the first 30 minutes after immunisation. And actually, they also say that if there are any adverse events after injection, that patients should be hospitalized. Um, now, this <laughs> I hadn't heard of PIP Deploy before, to be honest, um, but knowing that this exercise took place in the rapid deployment of vaccine centers is, I don't believe in coincidences. So I went to look at the UK relationship with Vietnam, and um, it's interesting because I went and looked at the Department of um, Trade. Uh, we import 5.2 billion from Vietnam, export 1 billion, and uh, Vietnam is the UK's 43rd largest trading partner. Now, just to stay on the theme of um, Vietnam, and like I say, I don't believe in coincidences, and I'm just joining dots here, but some of you may recall that our Assistant Chief Medical Officer, Professor Jonathan Van Tam, is from Vietnam. And uh, his grandfather uh, was the Prime Minister of the state of Vietnam, and his uncle was Chief of Staff of the Vietnamese National Army. And actually, Professor Jonathan Van Tam is also um, a quite highly ranked member of the Territorial Army, I believe. Um, but he's also been made honorary chairman of the Vietnamese Intellectual Society in the UK and Ireland. Now, just to tell you, this was founded in 2020, a year after COVID. Um, it's a professional volunteer-based society of Vietnamese academics and experts. They want to foster con communications and connections with the UK, build bridges. Um, JVT has been promoting all of this and he is now honorary chairman. And as you can see there, he's been hailed as a as, as the new leader. And does that make him a UK envoy unofficially, perhaps? I don't know. But just finally tie up on Professor Jonathan Van Tam. Let's just not forget that currently he is working for Moderna um, and Moderna have a new factory that they will be opening in the UK for mRNA vaccine production. So I'm not making any allegations or accusations. I'm just joining a few dots and PIP deploy. Perhaps we should have a deeper dive into that. Uh, thank you, Debbie. Now we will end today. We can't end without mentioning uh, Tucker Carlson and his uh, discussions with Vladimir Putin. Uh, and well, I don't know how many tens of minutes the last time I saw something like 65 million views on this uh, so far. Uh, I can tell you that the BBC was utterly disgusted that uh, a conspiracy theorist like Tucker Carlson uh, would have uh, had the opportunity to speak to Vladimir Putin uh, instead of the BBC. 
Uh, and Bert, but I mean, is it surprising, bear in mind the way the BBC have treated the uh, Russian ambassadors of the UK in recent years? Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, we have a little bit of video here, uh, just a, a couple of seconds of it. I suggest everybody watches this because although Tucker Carlson seemed to be uh, a little bit out of his depth from time to time, uh, there is no question that uh, Putin had uh, the answers at the tip of his tongue. I, I compare uh, his his performance with that of Rishi Sunak, who was uh, in Devon yesterday. He was in Plymouth yesterday at the BBC. Uh, and uh, his his performance on BBC Spotlight, uh, which is uh, their, the, the local BBC news programme in the Southwest, was was just pathetic. But anyway, let's, let's have a look at this uh, one uh, comment here from Putin. We support this. So I just want to make sure I'm not misunderstanding what you're saying. I don't think that I am. I think you're saying you want a negotiated settlement to what's happening in Ukraine. <laughs> right. And we made it. We prepared a huge document in Istanbul that was initialed by the head of the Ukrainian delegation. He affixed his signature to some of the provisions, not to all of it. He put his signature and then he himself said, we were ready to sign it and the war would have been over long ago, 18 months ago. However, Prime Minister Johnson came, talked us out of it, and we missed that chance. So I think that allegation has to be answered. And if anybody wonders why we cover topics like Ukraine, well, of course, it's because of the uh, British involvement in that. And uh, in the case of Boris Johnson, who was Prime Minister at the time, his direct involvement in making sure that that conflict continued. And that has happened uh, with government ministers and government prime ministers uh, since. Uh, so anyway, uh, I recommend people watch that interview to get a feeling for what uh, Vladimir Putin is all about. Um, and uh, uh, we will we maybe talk a little bit more about this uh, in extra as well. Um, but we've got to leave it there for today. I'm going to say thank you very much to Debbie and to Ben for today. Thank you for watching. Um, we'll be back uh, on Monday at 1pm as usual if you're uh, not a UK column member. Otherwise, stick with us for extra and we'll see you in a few minutes. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.